Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the Fantasy Magazine Story Podcast. I am your temporary host, whose voice will fade away, but will nonetheless introduce you to a stunning fantasy. In this episode, listen to Beginnings by Christina Ten, narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. Fantasy Magazine is edited by world fantasy finalists Christy Yant and Arlie Sorg. Our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Christina Ten is a Russian-American writer with work in Lightspeed, Podcastle, Diabolical Plots, Flash Fiction Online, Weird Horror, and elsewhere. A graduate of Clarion West Writers Workshop, she is a current MFA candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she also teaches creative writing. You can find her at christinaten.com and on Twitter as at Christina underscore 10. Christina is with a K. So, join us for a getaway from the real world. Have we got a fantasy for you? Beginnings by Christina 10. In the beginning, June and Nat are best friends. June is not yet a swarm of honeybees, and Nat is not yet a cloud of horseflies. And the king hasn't yet decided that separating them into parts like this, uh, June's left pinky finger one bee, her left ring finger another, is the only surefire way to strip them of what they really are, which, at least in the beginning, is best friends living together on the outskirts of town, sharing a dresser full of secondhand band tees, squeezing lemon juice onto one another's hair in the summer, then sitting together on the blacktop to wait. In the beginning, the prince is more interested in mastering a fakie heel flip than meeting girls, but his father is insistent, and the prince knows he's about one wrong attitude son away from not being allowed to stay in the castle rent-free anymore. So he says all right. All right to a casual barbecue or something, not like a whole thing. Uh, Not like that time the prince's dad hijacked his birthday party and dragged everyone downstairs to see his collection of hunting rifles and showed the prince's then-love interest how to skin a deer without giving her an apron or anything, so deer blood got all over her yellow halter top. Even though nobody will admit it to his face, the prince knows everyone's kind of scared of his dad. Like the girl, she was all animal rights before then dog rescues, vegan menus, I am a life, not a lunch bumper sticker on the back of her car. In the beginning, June is not honeybees, Nat is not horseflies, and both score jobs at the dessert shop walking distance from their apartment, which in the summer sells ice cream and the rest of the year sells pies and still a little ice cream for people who want it a la mode. June and Nat applied for this job because it's the only one in town, apparently, that doesn't require them to freeze their butts off wearing short skirts all day in an air-conditioned mall. 
Rumor has it that Rebecca, who played volleyball with them back in high school, wore leggings under her skirt one day and got fired on the spot. Besides, the dessert shop is one of those old-fashioned places that spells it with an extra P-E, and June and Nat have a lot of fun shouting, Shoppy! Shoppy! while twirling their fake mustaches and straightening their fake double-breasted vests. In the beginning, the prince's dad was okay with him taking a gap year, but now it's getting a little excessive. Now it's getting a little no-son-of-mine, So now, two years after walking the stage at graduation, it's either go to college, Penn State preferably, and do something, clubs, grades, with your life there, or stay in town and do something, wife, kids, with your life here. The main point being, well, get on with it already. And if it's the wife-slash-kids route, that's all right with the prince's dad, who has always wanted to teach a little slugger the ways of the world who passed through the toy gun section at the big retail store the other day, and there was this tiny rifle with an orange tip and a camo strap that made him soften a little, that made him think, huh, how about that? Isn't that cute? In the beginning, when June and Nat find the invite to the barbecue stuffed in their mailbox alongside a random catalog, the kind that sells sensible women's office fashions, and a bunch of other stuff they didn't ask for, they struggled to remember who the prince is. Did they have homeroom with him? Or was he that one guy in that group of guys who always booed Mr. Lefkowitz at assembly? And does it really matter, they wonder, when clearly this invite went out to all the townies, the kids who stuck around, and they aren't those, not really. Because June's only here for as long as it takes to save up for X-ray technician school, and Nat's only here as long as June is, which isn't long now because they're already talking about their apartment in the city and how since there's no way they'll be able to afford anything bigger than a studio, it'll feel like a sleepover all the time. In the beginning, the prince is a little miffed that June and Nat don't come to the barbecue, for which his father promised to supply venison burgers but otherwise stay more or less out of the way, and which is attended not only by girls, but Well, girls are kind of the point. And people do come, and they say nice things about the music and the decor and the food. And the prince even gets to show off the skate ramp he and his dad are building in the driveway, which is pretty much his mom's worst nightmare. But should she really get a say, considering she's always up in her office at the tippy-top of the tallest turret, uh, the prince thinks it's called day in, day out, doing people's taxes or whatever. So the party's a hit. Mary even makes it. And her hair looks good long. And it's not a huge deal about June and Nat. Until the prince mentions it to his father. In the beginning, before June is a swarm of honeybees, she still gravitates toward Nat like Nat's the sweetest smelling flower. And before Nat is a cloud of horseflies, she still charges anyone who's even remotely unkind to June, totally ready to bite like the guy at the dessert shop who called June a bitch for not giving him her number, who rolled his chew around the inside of his mouth like a threat and knocked the tip jar over before walking out with a strawberry cone. Then Nat ran around the counter to pick up the change and swore to June the next time she would key the motherfucker's car. And June, she wants to be an x-ray technician, right? She wants to go to school 
to learn to see through people. Once, when they'd had too much to drink during some TV marathon, Nat made a joke like June could practice on her if she wanted, like, Junie, bet you can't see right through me. And Junie didn't take her up on it or anything, but looked at her for a long time, kept looking even after Nat, cheeks beer hot, looked away. In the beginning, when the prince tells his dad whatever, those girls are attached at the hip, and his dad says, what do you mean? The prince doesn't know what he means exactly. He means they're best friends, are they? Ever since I can remember. And they live together? On the south side. That's so. And they do everything together. Everything? Everything. And before the prince can say anything more about it, like probably they were just busy working the same shift or something, or his dad is doing that thing again where he absolutely has to have his way, like with the forced vegan deer skinning, his dad is out the door. With his 3030 Winchester 94, which he's nicknamed, so embarrassing, the Kingdom Defender. In the beginning, it's supposed to be a simple, wave it in their faces, scare them straight situation. Make sure they never stand his son up like that ever again. But then Nat gets mega protective like she does. And also sometimes, honestly, she just hates this town so bad. The way her name tag at work has to say Natasha instead of just Nat, manager's orders, and all the other ways she can't be completely herself. So she launches herself at the king's head in the middle of the dessert shop parking lot, June a few seconds too late out of the double doors, and wrestles him, limbs flying to the ground. And what's the king to do then? Royal decree number one is the right to self-defense. When Nat comes apart, it begins at her chest, at the point where the bullet enters, then spreads throughout her entire body. A near-instant dissolution of hair, skin, gritted teeth, bald fists still in food safety gloves, into a hundred thousand furious horseflies. A hundred thousand pairs of membranous wings, compound eyes. When June comes apart, it begins with her mouth open in a soundless scream like that painting they both know, made replicas of during a wine and paint class they took once for Nat's birthday. Then not soundless. Then thunderous buzzing, as the bees bloom out of her, through her, from her. Like her organs are the first to go. Like what happens when you die of heartbreak, inside out. Everybody talks about happy endings, like, and then all the many parts of them flew as one into the sunset, which isn't what happens at all. They don't even recognize one another. Obviously, of course. But no one talks about the other way around, how in the beginning June and Nat are best friends, and the lemon juice works its magic, and they both have blonde streaks for the summer. The blacktop is hot, but not too hot. The future is bright and not yet impossible. And they think next time they'll try fresh-squeezed lemons for a change instead of the stuff that comes in the bottle. Welcome back. You've been listening to Stefan Rudnicki narrating Beginnings by Christina Ten. We hope you enjoyed this offering. If so, please... Help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or on the social media venue of your choice. 
Our editors are Christy Yant and Arlie Sorg. This podcast is copyright 2022 by Adamant Press. Our sponsor this month is Flatiron Books, whose current feature title is Ordinary Monsters by J.M. Miro. We publish Fantasy Magazine and this podcast for free, but please consider our many subscription options or recurring patronage at fantasy-magazine.com slash support slash subscribe. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the audio stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rutnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production was by Jim Freund, and our music was composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Thank you for listening. Wishing you cheers from all of us at Fantasy Magazine. It is time to release you back to reality. For now. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.